Our Father in heaven, it's almost more than we can ever imagine to think of what we've just sung is actually true, yet it is, and so I pray that you would grant to us even now a deeper glimpse. Whatever our minds, eyes can bear, to see that glorious truth of all that is to come. Father, that you would grip with grip our hearts with that, our minds with that, captivate us, Father that we would live, in a sense, there even today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to Ezekiel in chapter 43. Ezekiel chapter 43. I want to read verses... 1 through 12, Ezekiel chapter 43, 1 through 12. Hear the word of God. Then he led me to the gate, to the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kabar Canal. And it fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their whoring and by the the dead bodies of their kings at the high places, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost, with only a wall between me and them. They defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, So I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits, and its entrances, that is, its whole design. And make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws and write it down in their sight so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. Now, when we last left our friend Ezekiel, he had just seen, heard really, and seen this picture this vision of this last great battle. Uh, The vision, the picture that he had was Gog of Magog, this distant king, uh, gathering together with him the kings of other nations to come against the people of God. And in that particular battle, what he saw was God rise up and defeat the armies of the enemy. And then as we sort of pulled and tugged on that a bit, we found it again, this great battle. In numerous little references, places in the book of Revelation, finally in chapter 20, the next to the last chapter of the Bible, we find this same battle 
nothing short of the battle that we have come to know in our culture as the Battle of Armageddon, but that, that great last battle. And it's there, of course, that, that, that the nations of the world, because Satan influences them finally, the nations of the world gather themselves together and come against the people of God. And that may seem frightening, but it needn't be because God is victorious over them. And we are saved. And the end comes. And then we receive glory and live there forever in the very presence of God. Now, the people in Ezekiel's day would see that and see that there's something off in the distance that, that, that's bigger than anything that, that has even been spoken to them thus far, that it's off in the future, yet their most immediate situation is the fact that they're in exile from Jerusalem and God has made a promise to restore them back to their land in some sense. And so that's, in a sense, what they're, what they're looking for in the immediate. But then they see this way off into the distant. But yet God has made this promise to them. And the question that would be, no doubt, on their mind is, what do we really have to go back to? Because you might remember that all the way back in Ezekiel in chapter 10, the vision that Ezekiel had then, and this was before the destruction of the temple and before the Babylonians came and all of that, but the vision that he had was God leaving the temple. That he saw God as he had seen him before, this vision of God. And he saw God leave the temple through the east gate. And God removed his presence because of the sin of the people. And after God removed his presence, and then of course the Babylonians came in and took it all. So the question would be, well, if we're going to be restored, what are we really having? What do we really have to go back to? God had said that he would change their hearts and he would put his spirit within them and he would take out their heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh and enable them then to, call, to walk in his statues. But what would they have if they went back into this place, Jerusalem? Well, beginning in chapter 40, we see this last great vision. It takes up these last nine chapters in the book of Ezekiel. So turn there, chapter 40 and verse 1. I'm not going to read this whole deal, but just a few verses to begin. So you can see what he's seeing now. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city in visions of God. He brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain, on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze, with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears, and set your heart upon all that I show you, for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. So you get this picture. Ezekiel finds himself. I, don't you think how weird it would have been to be Ezekiel? I wake up every morning and I'm thankful that I'm not Ezekiel, that I'm looking at the ceiling in my bedroom and I know what that is. But Ezekiel would find himself, and here he is now, sitting atop of a great mountain in Jerusalem. And he's seeing this, this vision and this man of bronze, this angel perhaps, in some sense, comes to him. And he's got this long measuring rod with which he's going to major, measure dimensions. And in his measuring of these dimensions, he, he, he measures the dimensions of, of this temple. And he tells Ezekiel, I want you to look at this and I want you to listen to what I say and then I want, to, want you to take back everything that you see in here and declare it to these exiles. 
So you get a sense in which this is going to be helpful to them. And so uh, this angel uh, begins to, to, to show Ezekiel what is here, this, this humongous, this big structure, this temple. And he begins to measure it out and, and give him the floor plan of it and the layout of it and all of that in tremendous detail. In fact, if you would read this, and I would urge you to, it, it, you know, it, it, it's those parts of Scripture that sometimes you're reading in your quiet time, you're going, oh, how am I going to apply this to my life? What's a cubit anyway? But, but it's fascinating, and it's, and it's great detail, because the gateways into this temple proper were three. There was an east gate, a north gate, and a south gate. There was no gate on the west, because, because it was the, the western part of, the, of the, the structure that occupied the holy place and the most holy place. And so there was no gate there. But let's say this was, was the temple proper, if you will. Coming into this, what I call the Sanctionasium, people always ask what we're going to build next. Next we build the Sanctodome. I want you to know that. <laughs> but uh, the, the Sanctionasium, this was the temple proper. Then entering in the three gates to the east, to the south and to the north would be these very long corridors, these very long gateways that were 50 by 25 cubits. Now, give or take, given what a cubit is, uh, we might be looking at something about 80 or so feet long and about 40 or so feet wide. So quite, quite large and quite long and wide. And along the sides of these gateways would be three rooms, three on each side. And they would be rather like guard rooms that people would be looking outside through windows and inside to see who it is that's coming into this temple proper. And as you would enter this temple proper, you would find an outer court. And it was kind of like in a horseshoe shape because, because sort of in the, in the center western half of it would be this holy place and most holy place. And around this outer court would be a series, and you can read about them in this temple, a series of rooms various chambers where the priests would occupy in some sense and others would occupy in another sense. It would be a place of preparation for the priests because they had things to do. There would be kitchens alongside where food would be prepared because when people would come to offer their sacrifice, the sacrifice would be eaten. And so various ones would come uh, for those celebrations and those times of eating. And then, in the, then there was the inner court and as you left the outer court and walked up more steps to get into the inner court from from the east and from the south and from the north, you would find yourself right before the altar of sacrifice. And then from the altar of sacrifice west, you would travel into a vestibule. And from that vestibule, the holy place. And from that holy place, the most holy place. And of course, they would understand that that most holy place would be the very presence of God the very presence of God there. That's where he lived in the temple. That's where his place was. And you remember the high priest, and only the high priest, could go there only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would go only after cleansing himself and only after offering a blood sacrifice for himself. And then he would offer sacrifice for the people and he would take the blood there on behalf of the people into this most holy place and lay it on the mercy seat, sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, this top of the Ark of the Covenant for the atoning sacrifice of the people. So that's what Ezekiel is seeing. And he's laid out in, in tremendous detail. But it's interesting that this one with whom Ezekiel is viewing this great structure, 
This one doesn't tell Ezekiel, now go and take these blueprints back so the people can build it. He simply says, go and take this back and declare it to them. Because you see, this particular temple has never been, it was never built, has never been built. It, it wasn't the temple that was built in the days of Zerubbabel because the people were restored ultimately and some decades after this. Ultimately were restored to Jerusalem. Those exiles did go back. And when they went back, they were led by a man named Zerubbabel who took the rubble. <laughs> Not Barney, but this, the, the mess around the temple and, and, and rebuilt the temple. You remember Nehemiah went back and rebuilt the wall around the temple. But it wasn't like this. It was a temple, but it wasn't like this. It wasn't this glorious. So that temple was rebuilt. But this one never, never really built because there was no instruction, no command to actually build this thing. It was see it, view it, declare it, go back to the people with this uh, information. Now the question that arises then, if it wasn't built... Nothing was ever built to these specifications. Why the tremendous detail on how it should be built? Why the tremendous de- detail, excuse me, not on how it should be built. Why the tremendous de- detail of the layout of this temple if it was never to be built? Well, let me give you two reasons. One, first, that God was showing the people what it would mean for him to live in their presence again in a language that they understood. See, the last thing they remember of God was that he was actually departing the temple. But notice in chapter 43 and verse 1 what Ezekiel sees now. I've already read this to you, but let's review. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. That was a good thing, because he had gone out the east, and now he's coming from the east. So he had been parked over there, And now he's coming. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters in the earth, shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision that I had seen by the Kobar Canal. You remember when we first met Ezekiel, he was shortly on his face because he had seen God. And he knew that to be God. He's seen him again. And he's seen him come from the east. So then I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gates facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And so God is giving them a picture, you see, of what it is to live in the very presence of God. What it means to live among, within him and his temple. And he's given it to them in a language that they can understand because the only way the people in Ezekiel's day could understand living in the presence of God would be in the context of a temple. Because that's the way God had revealed himself. That's the way he had always been. They didn't have a category in their brain for God to live outside the temple. And they didn't have a category in their brain for them to be in his presence apart from this temple. So when he left the temple way back in chapter 10, that was devastating to them. It was as if they were leaving him. In fact, Ezekiel said at that point in time, in chapter 11 of verse 13, Ezekiel says to God, does this mean that the remnant of Israel is gone forever because you've left the temple. And now he sees them come back. He's going to say, this is what it means to live in my presence. And he tells them, of course, in a language, in a way, in a picture that they can really understand. Let me illustrate that like this. Let's say that you're a painter. And let's say you were kidnapped. 
And let's say you were kidnapped and you were taken to a place that was utterly sterile and you couldn't paint at all. But painting was your life. And an angel came to you and said, you're going to be restored as a painter. Now, what could that angel tell you that would really encourage you? Wouldn't it be that he would describe for you the most perfect painting studio? Tell you about the lighting in more detail than non-painters would ever want to know. But in all the detail that you as a painter would want to know, and it would begin to thrill your soul. Yes. I could think of no better paste. And he would tell you of all the supplies that you would have. Now I'm going to get non-painter and all the stuff you need because I'm not a painter. Ezekiel was a priest. And he comes to Ezekiel and he says, you know, let me tell you and let me tell the people in a language that they'll understand what it's really like. Here's the perfect place. The perfect presence of God. It'd be like you're a scholar and you're kidnapped and you're taken to a place where, where you can't do your research, you can't read, you can't write, you can't do anything. And then an angel comes to you and says, you're going to be restored as a scholar. How would he convince you? Wouldn't it be that he'd begin to explain what your new study was going to be like? It's a language you understand. And he would go volume by volume, probably book by book. He would tell you the computer programs that are available to you and all the other stuff you need. And it would begin to thrill your soul. Here, we have God coming to Ezekiel saying, you know what it means to, to, to be restored to me, to live in my presence? Let me, let me explain this to you in a, in a fashion, in a way that you can really understand. So let me give you a picture of the perfect temple where everything is there and everything is provided and this is what it really means to live in my presence. And he says, if you declare this to them, you know what's going to happen to them? They're going to begin confessing their sins and they will live a holy life. Notice in verse 6. Well, the Son of Man was standing beside me. I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of Man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, while I will dwell in the midst of my people of Israel forever. And they would understand that perfectly. Yes, of course, that's the way it must be. God can't exist without without some kind of structure, without some kind of temple, and here it is. And he says, And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, because, you see, they had defiled the holy name of God before. And the kings encroached upon the holy place where they weren't supposed to be as kings. And they built their homes right next to the the temple. And some of them were even buried too close to where it was defiling the name of God. And then verse 10. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. He said, listen, if you show this to them, if you show the beauty of this temple to them, it will convict them of their sin." that they're ashamed of their iniquities and they shall measure the plan. And if they're ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements and so forth, and then teach them to observe all of its laws. Because you see, when they would take a glimpse of this perfect place of the presence of God, they would see, first of all, the great holiness of God, the separateness of God, the otherness of God. Because to come into his presence, you would have to come in from this outer gate, and then through this outer court, and then through this inner court, and then by way of sacrifice, and then by way of the the holy place, and then the most holy place. And he says, in order to get there, you need to have a recognition of your own sin and your own unholiness. And when you get there, you realize, I've made provision for you. You haven't made provision for you. I've made provision for you. You're only there because of me. He says, when they see this, 
and they really see this, then they'll see their own holiness and my holiness, and they'll come into my presence. Now again, as I said, it's interesting that, that they never built this temple. In fact, it was never built. The temple of Zerubbabel wasn't built to these specifications. In fact, that particular temple was defiled, you know, if you know your history. Second century BC, it was recaptured, but made into a fortress more than a temple. And then you remember that Herod, to pacify the Jews, in about 19 or 20, actually better, 20 or 19 BC, began to, to rebuild, refurbish, remodel this temple. And in fact, he must have been like one of those remodelers that goes on HTTV. It takes a 1,200-square-foot house and makes it into an 8,000-square-foot house, and they call it a remodel. Um, because he took what was there, and he made it huge, even bigger than many of the dimensions we find here. In fact, it wasn't finished until 64 A.D., so all the period of time just adding and adding and all that sort of thing. But that temple wasn't like this temple either. In fact, even that temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So there's no temple. And we think, is God unfaithful to his word? Is there no temple? Is there no, no, no presence of God? Is there no way to come and live within him? Well, remember, we've been talking about the progressive revelation of Scripture how we see things in the Old Testament as shadows and symbols of what's to come. And so Jesus helps, helps us along here. Turn to John in chapter 2. I'm going to run you through the New Testament really quickly. John chapter 2, in verse 18. You, you know this scene. It's a classic scene. Jesus comes into the temple. He sees people who are buying and selling and cheating one another. And he looks at the temple and he says, this isn't the way my father's house is to be. My father's house is to be a house of prayer. And this is a den of thieves. And so you know what he does. In a very, what seems to be a very uncharacteristic uh, Jesus here, he, he almost violently uh, moves everybody out. And of course the authorities who were there, the Jewish authorities who were there, took issue with Jesus about this. And they knew that when the Messiah came, that he would come with signs. And, he, and, he, and they began to wonder if this was one of those signs. And so they asked him in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Now they said the logical thing, verse 20. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Remember, it started about 20 or 19 B.C. And now it's probably 27-ish, 28-ish or so B.C. It's hard to count those dates, but that's the rough estimates there. It's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? Now, after the fact, it is after the crucifixion resurrection, we get a hint. We know what Jesus is really talking about, so John fills us in even before the fact Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the, and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, clearly, Jesus is, is talking about the fact he's going to be crucified and raised on the third day. But there's something else here, too. He's equating his own body. He's equating himself with the temple structure. And he's saying, this thing can be destroyed, but that's all right, because it's going to come back in three days. That is, the temple structure will be raised, not A-R-I-S-E-D, 
but raised, taken down, and then rebuilt in just three days the temple of his body. Now, how could Jesus say that? Because it was true. Because everything in him as he stood there was symbolized in that temple as it stood there. Could you imagine what that would have looked like with eyes to see, seeing Jesus stand outside of the temple and just have that, 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 that picture? Because everything that was in him was in there, in symbol form. The very presence of God was Jesus, God with us. The presence of God in the temple. The priests who were necessary in order to take that which was unholy and bring it before God that it may be cleansed was in Jesus for he would take our sin and the priests would take the animals and the very sacrifice that had to be a perfect unblemished sacrifice was Jesus and yet in the temple itself were the lambs that were the unblemished sacrifice that were to go before God and the only way to come into the presence of God was by faith to confess one's sin and to have an atoning sacrifice made on your behalf. That was there in this building, but yet it was there in Jesus. The only way to come to God was by confessing your sin, turning away from them and receiving the atoning sacrifice, this very one, Jesus himself. It was all right there. I remember when Jesus was speaking to the woman from Samaria, turned to John chapter 4. Verse 19, you remember the Samaritans and the Jews were enemies, despised each other. Great history uh, to that despising one another, a family feud, most of them are quite bitter, and this was one of them. Uh, They argued about everything, Uh, most especially they fought about where God should be worshipped. The Samaritans had a temple built on their own mountain, and the Jews, of course, believed that God must be worshipped in Jerusalem. So there was that bitter debate. It became more bitter uh, because the Jews actually, uh, in the first, late, first uh, to the second century BC, uh, came and destroyed the temple of the Samaritans. And so they were especially angry about all of that. And so Jesus comes upon this woman, verse 19. She says to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. He's saying, listen, a day is coming when these buildings mean nothing. And how could he say that? Because he was standing there. Because the day would come when the temple in Jerusalem, which symbolized him, which foreshadowed him, would no longer be needed ever because he would make that atoning sacrifice. Turn back to Matthew in chapter 27 and verse 51. This little sentence is after the crucifixion of Jesus. It's right after he gives up his spirit. Verse 51. 
And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Now that curtain is a very significant curtain. There are a couple of curtains in the temple that Herod was working on. There was one that separated the vestibule outside the holy place and the holy place. And then there was another curtain that separated between the holy place and the most holy place. And you remember the most holy place, the very presence of God. The high priest could only go once a year. And we believe it's that curtain that was torn. And while it wouldn't be open for a public gaze because of where it was, the word would spread. And it was as if God was saying, because of Jesus, this whole system isn't needed anymore. Just come through the death of Christ. And of course, the author of Hebrews centers his whole life around this. Hebrews in chapter 4 and verse 14. Hang on with me, not much more. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and, and, and find grace to help in time of need. That is, it's not by way of this earthly temple anymore. That only pointed to what was to come and he came. Now it's through Christ and him alone. You want to enter into the throne of grace? How do you do that? Well, you could if you wanted to. If you could put Jesus in the shape of this huge temple with all these gates, confess your sins and you come through the gate and you see his atoning sacrifice and you enter into the presence of God. They both say the same thing. Notice chapter uh, 6 and verse 19 of Hebrews. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. You see, Jesus already went there. He went there for us. He did what all that was necessary behind the curtain. And then chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He says, listen, Jesus went into the holy of holies and sprinkled his blood on your behalf. This old holy of holies is obsolete. It was what God gave you until the coming of Jesus. But he gave it to you to picture what Jesus would do and who Jesus would be. It's no longer important. It's no longer necessary because we have him. In Ezekiel's day, it was the language they understood. They had to receive this vision that way. But it didn't need to be built because Jesus came to fulfill it and to be it. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. You see, all that was was a copy of that which was heavenly. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. See, Jesus does that. 
We don't need a priest anymore. And since we don't need a priest anymore, we don't need a temple anymore. Jesus does that. We don't need sacrifices anymore because Jesus was our sacrifice, so we don't need a temple anymore. It was the picture that Ezekiel got because it explained Jesus to them. If they would have had a category in their brain sufficient, which I'm not slighting them here, they couldn't have. I wouldn't have. You wouldn't have. Their whole orientation to God was temple, presence of God in the temple. But he said, so I'll give you that beautiful picture. And then when Jesus comes, you'll see how he is this picture. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, do you understand what that means? Before Jesus, if you would have entered into the holy of holies, you would have died. In fact, tradition was that they would always tie a rope around the high priest's ankle because if he went in there and died, who's going in there after him? It's sort of... But now, the author of Hebrews says, you can enter into the very presence of God. How? Because of Jesus. Because he went there. And we are now in him. He is the manifestation of that very temple of God. But there's something else here. It's two minutes to twelve. Nobody's playing anything today. (laughs) Of any value. Just five, six more minutes. Okay? Hang in there. Now there's something else here. because, Because you see, as we enter into the presence of God... In Jesus, we live in the very presence of God. Let me just pause here quickly. You know what keeps me up at night? You do. And the reason you do, because I have this great worry that it isn't clear that the only way into the presence of God, the only way to be accepted by God is through Jesus. So think about that. If that's puzzling to you, continue to press it and think and call me or somebody because that's the whole ball of wax. That we enter into the presence of God that we're accepted by Him. Not because of anything we've done. Not to presume just because we're human beings. But because Jesus graciously took the penalty of our sin and paid it. There's nothing for us to do. We simply receive him and acknowledge it and trust him. Okay? Same picture that Ezekiel got, really. But now it's fleshed out, literally, in Jesus. But you see, once we come in him, then he begins building us. And we become the temple of God. 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, quickly. I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 16. The Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that you, and that's a plural you, okay? So it's an all y'all. Do you not know that all y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So you're getting this picture of temple where God lives, the presence of God. How do we enter into the presence of God? Only 
by way of confession, sacrifice, only by way of Jesus. If you could think that we're all sort of in him. He's the temple of God. And then he begins to build us as he lives in us to be the very temple of God. So then how ought we to live? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Saying, listen, just like in Ezekiel's day, if they could catch this image of Jesus, and if they could understand that they only enter into the presence of God through him, and when they see his life and confess their sin and enter through him, how now ought we to live? He says, well, understand. How did you get here in the first place? You were bought with a price. So then, to whom do I belong? No longer to yourself, but to this one who has purchased you. So then, how should I live? Well, to glorify your master. To glorify this one who has bought you. What did Ezekiel say? Tell them this, declare this to them, and when they do, they'll become ashamed of their iniquities. Because they'll see my holiness and the only way to me. And how then will they live? Well, they'll live holy lives in me. One last picture. Revelation 21. Verse 9. And then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, now remember John seeing this same kind of experience that Ezekiel had. He's taken in the spirit. He's seeing something. A vision. And he says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now, we already know who the bride, the wife of the lamb is from chapter 21 and verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And so the very presence of God in this city, in this place, John seeing it. Verse 10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Interestingly, if he could just transport himself some century, Ezekiel would have been sitting there, no doubt. High mountain showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had high, a high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes and the sons of Israel were inscribed, and on the three gates, and on the, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, the south three gates, the west three gates, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names and the 12 apostles of the Lamb. He's okay. This is everybody. Old Testament believers, New Testament believers, tribes, apostles, all of us together in the very presence of God. And he goes on to describe the beauty of it. And then verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city. And you go, no temple? Why no temple? Because you don't need a temple. Because Jesus is right there. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God 
the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no more night. And they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So what? Well, this. The people in Ezekiel's day who are in exile were told by God, yes, I'll restore you to Jerusalem, but there's something bigger and better living in my very presence. So what I want you to do is keep that in your mind and live here as if you were there. And he says to us, now Jesus has come, so there's no need for a physical temple, for we come in and through him. But let me tell you what that means. What that means is the day will come when you'll be in his immediate presence. And of course there'll be no temple because there'll be no need for sacrifice because the sacrifice has already been made and you've already come. And so what I want you to do is keep that in your mind and live here as if you were there, holy before God, humbly before God, knowing that you've come, not because of yourself, but because of him, that he has supplied it all. And then it's interesting, because when Ezekiel sees this temple, there's something that's flowing out from under it, and it's a great river. And that great river that flows out from under it brings life everywhere it goes. So there's fish in it, so people fish it and, and eat great bounty there. And along the banks, trees sprout up, and they're so much alive that they bear fruit every month. And this river is the river of life. And the very next thing that John sees is the river of life. But that's for next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would grant to us a real understanding of Jesus, the very temple of God, God with us, that each would see that the only way in order to come into the presence of God and to live there is through him. And so I pray, Father, and we be a people who have confessed our sin. That we've trusted in other stuff. Ideas, philosophies, people, organizations, technologies. And now we say we trust in Christ alone. For he is the one who has taken our sin and saved us. And I pray, Father, that we would never lose sight of that which is to come, that we might live now as we will live there, holy before you. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. <clears throat> as I do, as you do, I remind you of our time together this um, Wednesday evening, 6 o'clock. I remind you, too, that elders are available to pray, so please take advantage of that.
The response to the benediction is a simple one, but profound. Simply this, hallelujah, amen. When I was a kid, I thought amen meant the end. But it doesn't. It means yes. It means so be it. It means that's true. And thus, all I could think to say when I consider this incredible vision of who Jesus is and what he's done is to simply say hallelujah, which means praise be to God. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us, to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, hallelujah. Amen.